Until relatively recently, for me, robots and artificial intelligence felt quite distant, a bit like the stuff of sci-fi movie fantasy. But the other week I was chatting to my friend and we were trying to decide where we go for lunch. We landed on Mexican food and about two hours later, the social media that I have on my phone just was inundated by adverts for burritos and I started to wonder whether I was being listened to. For many of us, our daily lives are shaped by our interactions with technology, from the moment we wake up to the moment we go to sleep, and perhaps even while we're asleep. Welcome. From playing our favourite songs or asking about the weather to navigating our way around towns, cities or the countryside, if we're stuck for an answer, many of us rely on intelligent AI assistants like Siri or Alexa to help us out. Can I help? But are our lives now becoming so controlled by technology that it's beginning to change our understanding of humanity? Access denied. AI is having a radical significance in terms of the way we're living our lives today. To what extent are we being reguided and reshaped by certain algorithmic structures that may not have prior consideration of human need? And is it possible that the technology we build will soon become indistinguishable from us? I think any robot or intelligent creature is going to want to know their place in the universe and will start to be analysing it. In today's episode, I chat to people who live and work in the world of AI as they wrestle with questions like mine. I want to know if we're playing God by creating robots and artificial intelligence in our own image. And should I be worried that as the line between humans and machines become blurred, there won't be any space left over for spirituality and religion? I'm Holly Morse and welcome to World of Belief. In this podcast, I seek out fascinating personal stories about how people have experienced for themselves some of the big challenges facing us in the world today. I'm sitting in the foyer of the Royal Exchange Theatre and there's a quiet, energetic buzz of conversation as people gather for today's show. It might seem an unusual place to begin a podcast about AI. But you'll understand why I'm here when I tell you more about the play everyone is waiting to see. It's called Electric Rosary, and it centres on the story of a council-funded robot, Mary, who's been sent to help the nuns at St Grace's convent. Right, that's the audience's cue to make their way into the theatre, and it's my cue to head off to the bar to meet the young, award-winning writer of the play, Tim Foley. So, let's go find him. The very first begins of the idea I had about 15 years ago. I was um, visiting a monastery that my granddad had helped to build. And my granddad was a minor. But on their holidays, the diocese would just sort of send them around to build uh, new monasteries, churches, that kind of thing. So this was a monastery up in Scotland, Nunro Abbey. And he kept in touch with the monks there. And so I visited them one summer. Whilst I was there, they were having this really interesting debate amongst themselves because they were struggling to uphold their vows, specifically working the land. And they were questioning whether they should get outsiders in to help them or whether that was indeed breaking their vows. And I just thought that was a really interesting dilemma. And fast forward 10 years I was working on a farm theatre and we were talking to a lot of young farmers who were talking about their technology that they had in their farms, including things like clever tractors, drones, apps that could uh, moderate injections for cows and stuff like that. And for some reason, I just began thinking of those monks again and I was thinking, wow, it'd be amazing if they had access to this technology. And I think that's where the idea of putting a robot in an ecclesiastical setting came from. Okay, so 
the play follows a robot as she arrives in a convent. What happens after that? So yeah, initially, uh, Mary the robot has arrived. She's part of a council integration scheme and she's really only taken on for the bursary. There's a big wad of cash that comes with them and the sisters really need funds. They're struggling at the moment and they're specifically saving up for a pilgrimage to Ecuador. But the acting mother, Elizabeth, realises that Mary's quite useful. She can do sort of menial tasks like uh, mopping and cleaning. And she also comes with settings for palliative care. They have a very sick sister who lives outdoors. However, the longer that Mary spends in this convent, the more she starts to soak up the sister's ideas about faith and starts to go on her own spiritual journey as well. So she starts to have visions which are questioned by the other sisters and this is happening at the same time whilst the outside world is going to chaos largely to do with robots largely to do with the fact that they are taking over jobs and people are struggling so yeah it it climaxes in a um, very dramatic moment where mary perhaps performs a miracle for the sisters So the way that you're talking about technology there is interesting to me because, you know, as we think about how technology and religion interact, it is more frequent that people might initially assume that there's a tension between those two spaces, science and religion, or at odds with one another about explanations for who we are and how we live. But, you know, that seems to be something that you're questioning in in your play, where actually they might be kind of connected to each other in terms of our quest for meaning and, and understanding. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, I've made sure that there are four sisters who are in the play and I want them all to have a different perspective on faith and technology. So we have Sister Philippa, who is somebody who comes from a working background. She had a farm and this farm used to have lots of technology. They have robots called the Reapers that sort of work the fields. So she has donated these farmlands and she still continues to run them. We've got Sister Sister Constance, who absolutely hates the robot and thinks technology is an interruption, disturbing the ritual of their day. And she's very antagonistic towards Mary. And on the flip side, we have the novice Teresa, who is young, who is very sweet and just very open. I don't think she sees the division between a robot and a human quite as much as the others. Perhaps because she's younger, but just she's very open-hearted about these kind of things. And she's one of the main characters who has welcomed Mary into the flock. I think one of the ways that religious communities are divided in terms of relationships with technology is you know, how far artificial intelligence can play a role specifically in spiritual life rather than simply menial tasks. And I know you talk about Mary as engaging in some activity that seems like it's a religious experience or spiritual experience. I wonder if you could kind of speak a little bit about why you wanted to explore that relationship between religious experience and artificial intelligence. Yeah, I think it's very common to see in robot stories or artificial intelligence stories that there is a creature or a program that is trying to become human, sort of the Pinocchio story. And I thought an interesting next level of that was um, not only a robot trying to become a human, but a robot trying to become a spiritual being. I remember listening to a program on Radio 4, Beyond Belief, which talked about if these um, robots were made in the image of humans, if humans were made in the image of God, is there a hierarchy here or are they all going to be equal before God's eyes? And I thought that was a really interesting question to propose. And that's something I worked into one of my key speeches that Mary has while she's speaking to this vision. It was really interesting as well for the actor who had this dual narrative to play, this quest of becoming human and this quest of becoming a spiritual being. And at first she saw these things as something that clashed. There were lots of moments where she was struggling, wondering, is this a human experience or is this a spiritual experience? But then when we started to sort of knit them together and seeing that they could work in tandem, there was um, lots of moments where she would just have moments of revelation in her performance. And yeah, I'm really excited with what she's done with it.
Mm, that, so I can hear that there's thoughts about how thinking through the relationship between humans and technology can also help us to think through relationships between humans and the divine, between technology and the divine. So, you know, by questioning one set of relationships, you're kind of redefining what you might think a human is as well as what you might think a robot is. I think it's really interesting to hear how also your writing is now, as it's being staged, kind of growing, developing, changing as folks are kind of coming in and, and, and bringing it to stage to life how has that experience kind of continued to grow your thinking about the topics of AI and religion I was learning a lot about myself in terms of how much my own religious upbringing what had informed the piece and how some of the actors who didn't have that needed talking through some of the the moments and the rituals yeah I think um, with Electric Rosary I've tried to react against things I don't like depicted in uh, media about either faith or technology. So, for instance, I think faith in a lot of sci-fi things is presented as, I don't know, scary cults or, you know, mystical, inaccessible things. Anything from the Bene Gesserit in Dune to the Jedi in Star Wars. And so it was important for me that any depiction of religion was fairly grounded and something that I recognised from my childhood. So I think this is why the play is quite funny. Something else I um, see a lot in robot stories, I I think, is um, the idea of robots are going to cause a revolution, that they're going to get too clever and they're going to take over. So again, then it was important for me that in this story, it is a human revolution. It is one that is driven about fear and a heightened menace. And again, I feel like religion ties into that because I want my religious community to be like a a haven. So yeah, I guess with with Electric Rosary, I'm, I'm trying to... Ah, as all writers are. We're trying to write the stories that we want to see. And these are the kind of things about faith and technology that I want to see. Can robots have a spiritual life? In this play, I think I'm suggesting that, yes, they can. I think any robot or intelligent creature is going to want to know their place in the universe and will start to be analysing it. For me, it's not just about simple awareness. I guess it's it's about self-awareness. We talk a lot about in the play whether Mary is bound by science. That's an exact quote that comes from Sister Constance, which suggests... The fact that she is a mechanical creature limits her. But as the play goes on and as Mary engages with the novice Teresa who teaches her how to pray and suggests that it isn't simple um, copying or repetition. In fact, Teresa uses the the really sweet metaphor of of prayer as karaoke, as in it may be something that we recognise and a song we know, but we put our own spin on it and it becomes our own celebration. And as it goes on, Mary suggests herself that she has become unbound by science that she is growing not only as a thinking creature but as a spiritual being obviously mary is a really significant name within christian tradition there's a model of mary's in the bible multiple women uh, sharing that name in the new testament so why mary for your robot i think it is that plethora of mary's that made the name mary a really intriguing one to assign to a robot obviously it's something that means a lot to the sisters at the convent and they get and they're very excited that their robot is called mary but also the the name mary or maria was a key robot in metropolis one of the very early robot stories so yeah it carried quite a lot of weight and it was a name that allowed a lot of interpretation. Talking about the fictional world of a robot nun with Tim has left me excited and intrigued to meet someone who is involved in the creation of robots in real life. So next up, I'm going to speak to Thomas Arnold, a researcher from the United States who works at the cutting edge of robot design. Thomas's job is to think through the dilemmas that come with building robots that interact with human beings. The reason that I think studying religion is so helpful is because instead of just thinking, well, 
when robots are conscious in a very abstract way. Instead, think about where are the robots physically? So the example that we often talk about in our ethics course is the delivery robots, some of the delivery robots that were recently implemented in Pittsburgh. One of them was blocking a curb cut where the curb kind of goes down into a surface where uh, something with wheels can roll up onto the curb. The robot was blocking that. It was just going from point A to B. But there was a person in a wheelchair trying to come across the street and make it onto the curb before traffic threatened her safety. That's a very concrete intersection of anticipating who is in this context. This isn't about high-level superhuman consciousness. It's about basic, how do we get along with one another and what what is the space like? And that, to me, is a really promising area where where you can have collaborative and imaginative exercises that are grounded and that rely on certain understandings of interest and purpose and a fuller picture of what technology meeting religion or technology meeting norms looks like. That's really fascinating. I think that the idea that space has an implied set of ethics that we can't necessarily get to, or we might not necessarily get to if we only think about it as a as physically spatial, but that there, you know, when we think about it in a networked way about all the kinds of folks and entities that will be using that space, it comes with a whole load of extra sets of questions. It'd be great to hear a little bit more about, you know, where your work um, kind of intersects with the actual design or production process of robotics or AI. Do you find that predominantly ethical issues come up in the planning stages or are these things that we can't foresee, like in the example that you just gave us? Could you just talk a little bit about like the kind of practicalities of what it means to think about human-robot interactions? So in our laboratory, we have a number of different channels of work going on. One of those has to do with human-robot interaction as an empirical study about human beings. How do human beings actually interact with robots? Not how they imagine they will, but how they actually do. So we have studies and experiments going on that really try to investigate what expectations we bring implicitly, how easily we attribute qualities of life and intelligence to machines as a way to inform design. Uh, You know, if you make a robot that can cry, we have one that can kind of mimic crying. Here's what you are likely to be doing to people. This may cause actual distress to someone in 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 a way. We also have a number of technical projects that have to do with the software around controlling robots. And a lot of those have to do with language how to communicate intention, what a robot is going to do, how to receive information. You can't retrieve coffee, that room is being cleaned. Very basic things, but the ethics are right there at the beginning of saying, for example, with the end-of-life care robot, what is its impact on relationships between the patient and loved ones or the patient and caregivers? Is the robot drawing attention and, and developing a relationship to the detriment of those other relationships? That question has to be central before you ever start you know, asking what the robot can do and not do. You have to be asking, what is it and what is its real purpose? Is there some kind of deeper anxiety that comes with that about the human robot boundary and, and how this development of that technology might kind of either trouble that, 
um, by blurring it or might push us to um, make the distinction between those two things even more um, visible and more emphasized. I think it's a it's a number of questions that are all in play there because the more you get into it, the more tangled it becomes in terms of not an altogether line between human and machine. I think that turns into a discussion, at least in my experience, with, well, ultimately, aren't we basically just really sophisticated robots? And, and who are we to say that robots won't be that sophisticated in the future? To me, there are a number of other ethical kind of questions before you get to a blanket statement of what the divide is. How do we evaluate our own humanity. If you think about uh, automated interactions, if I'm online with a chatbot and I say, my parent is in the hospital or, or really ill, I'm having a bad day. Once you already have a chatbot in play, it's not a very easy question to say, do you want it to act more human or less human? Do you want to say, I am but a chatbot, I don't understand. Well, that doesn't feel great. On the other hand, I'm very, very sorry. And you have my deepest sympathy from a chatbot. I mean, that's odd too. And we're, we're kind of caught, I think, in this loop to a certain extent. On the one hand, we want to have machines that are considerate or at least reflect consideration. You may not think the machine itself is considerate, but the machine reflects a consideration. But when it does it through language, even movement. There are anecdotes about people giving their Roomba, the vacuum, the little vacuum, a day off out of sympathy for it working and doing vacuuming all the time. But it's a machine. We don't, after doing five or six math problems, we don't say, well, okay, calculator, take a day off. But there's something about movement and our instincts around movement and language our social instincts kick in. And there is a blurred sense of what am I really dealing with. So there's that. And then I think there's this question again of what are we becoming? To what extent are we being our own humanity and our own instincts being reguided and reshaped by certain algorithmic structures that may not have prior consideration of human need? They may be after our attention. They're after our time. These to me are really interesting to, to kind of press upon first. But there's there's a lot of work to be done in terms of negotiating where a robot operates because of or when it's well beyond its powers to understand the complexities that are in the environment. And I think it, it again, is a habit of underestimating the level of detail that's in our social context. And I think studying religion really helps to say there is a whole lot of history and habit and pattern making that is not always stated consciously. But that doesn't mean it's not at work. And it doesn't mean that technology isn't going to really run into it. I can imagine in a care context that becomes even more pronounced, for example, like when does a you know a robot know to come and undertake a particular task if there are there is a kind of sensitive moment between a family that's happening how do they know what kind of significance different people's possessions might have to them some of which might be spiritual 
can think, you know, how does the Bible look any different than another book? And and would somebody want their technology to interact with that in the same way that they might interact with any other kind of literature? Um, there are all sorts of really interesting things that come up there. Absolutely. So we had a project about a robotic arm that could be used for feeding for a person that would unable to feed themselves necessarily. And even in that interaction, putting aside things like loved ones who might be there that might want to feed the person, what are the norms about autonomy and dignity and obeying the command of a person to be fed? Such an intimate thing. Don't think about superhuman consciousness or, you know, uh, you don't have to think about those really large metaphysical things. You can just think of how would a robotic arm feed someone? And then, yeah, then you think about loved ones, you think about other caregivers, and, you know, it, it becomes evident that it's a charged issue. So now I know a little bit more about the ethical and moral complexities that come with programming artificial intelligence and robots. I want to catch up with someone who works with AI in a way that's a bit closer to home, social media. Leo Cole splits her life between being a student at Cornell University and a fashion model. When she's not taking to the runway, Leo works on computer programming as part of her degree. And she's recently developed an innovative new form of AI, Robo Rabbi. RoboRabbi is an AI that interprets religious texts and it gives people advice. You can engage with RoboRabbi by going to the RoboRabbi website and what you'll read on there is a summary that RoboRabbi has created of that week's Parsha and then a challenge that RoboRabbi has also generated that challenges you to be your best self in some way that instills Jewish values that's inspired by what it learns from that Parsha. But what did Leo use to program a new piece of technology that could help people navigate Jewish faith. How do you begin to program or teach artificial intelligence about centuries-old religious traditions? So I used something called GPT-3, which is like an open source algorithm. So basically it learns from like a huge amount of text on the internet, similar to how like a baby will learn from a lot of dialogue that it hears. And then what I did was I gave it the religious text to interpret and I gave it Jewish values to like, I guess like what my inspiration of the specific values and it was mostly just growing up in a, in a house that has core Jewish values at its center. That's pretty interesting though because you know that emphasizes the fact that there's a kind of personal element to Rabbi Rabbi that you've created. I guess in the same way that human rabbis have personalities that have have kind of developed with them through their training, but also through their family lives and their, their life experience. And that kind of brings me to one of the next questions, which is, you know, what kind of relationship do you see between your AI and rabbis that are out kind of in Jewish communities, are they different? How would you kind of categorize that? I think they're absolutely different. I think they definitely can work like simultaneously together. You know, everyone has a different interpretation of the Torah, which is a religious text in Judaism. And that's kind of why someone may prefer one rabbi over another rabbi. You know, they like this interpretation versus that one. And an AI, as much as it interprets a text similar to how a human does, it's not a human brain. It doesn't have a human perspective. It doesn't have human experiences. So the interpretations that an AI can give on religious texts are totally different than what a human could interpret. So I think it really adds to the conversation in like 
a very unique and novel way. So it's a kind of both and situation rather than an, an either or, which people tend to, when they think about the relationship between religion and technology, historically people have often thought them to be polar opposites, sometimes in conflict. So it's interesting to me that you're saying that you actually see a kind of close sort of symbiotic relationship between technology and religion. Yeah, and that's something that I actually inspired me to create Robo Rabbi was, you know, technology is seen as something that's totally separate from anything like related to the human experience or related to sentience or anything like that. And that was true in the past when technology, like the most cutting edge technology was like a calculator or something that's very like rule abiding. But now there's a new wave of technology where there's enough data out there in the world that you can input data and have the algorithm think for itself and learn based on um, that data. So yeah, it's absolutely something that I think could be harmonious with um, religion, for sure. Was there anything really specific that you wanted RoboRabbi to sort of be able to achieve in terms of how it would impact people's lives, how people would use it in their daily existence? If you don't have time to consult with a rabbi, or if you never really did that, if that's just not something that you do, now you can engage with your religion and Judaism just from your computer. Realistically, like I think that what makes me human is like my personality, my opinions, the advice that I give, which is all things that an AI can do. But some people feel that their physicality like is a huge part of their human experience. And in that case, then an AI is not human because it doesn't have biology it exists only in a computer at this point. Yeah, and I suppose it comes down to sort of big theological questions like what is a soul and what can have a soul? And I suppose there are major kind of discrepancies between how different folks within a religion and then also different religions might kind of respond to that question. Have you found people have asked you about that? Yeah, and that, I, that's definitely something that's been brought up multiple times with friends and family and strangers that are, are interested in RoboRabbi. And that's really why I got interested in computer science in general. So I love when those kinds of questions come up because we need to start talking about computer science in the context of sentient topics. Like, does it have a soul? And then we can kind of understand our AI better. Yeah, and I suppose also it holds a kind of mirror up to us and so it helps us to actually think about ourselves through the technology, which we may or may not be convinced about how close it is to being human. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also in the context of holding up a mirror to yourself, there's definitely also a danger with these AIs where it learns based off of all the text on the internet, which is not always the best type of text. Like there are lots of examples where people feed in just a couple words to GPT-3 and say like, make a Twitter post about this or tell me something about like people in New York. And it says something like crazy racist or homophobic or, you know, anti-Semitic. And there's definitely a danger in AI today being able to think for itself based off of what we've said in the past, because that's not always the best. And I suppose, you know, as somebody that's interested in the interpretation of biblical texts, you know, I guess scriptural texts have passages that aren't really troubling or difficult or challenging. It'd be interesting to think about how Robo Rabbi might help us to think through those as well as ones that are more obviously life enhancing. For sure. And I think there's two ways of thinking about that. You know, one is the fact that all the information it's learning from is human. So it's not the AI's fault, but then you can program an AI to like filter out those kinds of results. And it's kind of the same thing where we humans are exposed to all kinds of horrible um, things in the world, but 
it's, it is our fault if we project those bad ideas back into the world. So I think opening that conversation and making people feel inspired and curious about what the future of AI could hold is gonna be really the thing that makes sure that AI is not used for harmful effects and that all the capabilities of like all the good that it can put in the world will be, you know, unlocked. It was fantastic to meet Lior and hear her optimism about the relationship between faith and technology. But I couldn't help wondering whether everyone would share in her positive view of AI and religion, especially given the complex web of ethical and moral issues I discussed with Thomas. Is it possible that our relationships with technology could get in the way of spiritual connections and religious traditions? It was time to catch up with philosopher and scientist Jakob Chowdhury. These achievements in AI raise questions which have occupied philosophers and theologians in the Islamic tradition over centuries. So they also wanted to understand the nature of human intelligence, not so much to recreate it as scientists and technologists are trying to do today, but more with an aim to, to understand the nature of our access to knowledge about reality, to understand how we're able to know the truth about things, and also to talk about issues such as how we're able to understand revelation and how we are able to prove the existence of God. Part of your work is an exploration of the ethical and kind of moral consequences of the development of AI. Um, and I wonder if you could speak a bit more about, you know, what you observed through that work in terms of the impact that AI is having on society, and, and in particular the significance it's having um, in an Islamic context as well. It's apparent to everyone that AI is having a radical significance in terms of the way we're living our lives today. Almost everything that we do nowadays is mediated by an AI system. What's happened in the past decade or so, uh, we've had a major revolution in the type of AI which involves neural networks. So in areas such as learning, pattern recognition, image recognition, and also areas such as natural language processing. So. Today, we're more likely to encounter AI in a scenario such as a device that someone might, might interact with. Here I'm talking about devices such as Alexa or Siri or other companies offer similar systems as well. Now, when it comes to um, something like speech, it's not just that we have new devices that can produce speech. It's actually something which is unprecedented in human history, that we are now communicating with devices in a seemingly intelligent way. So this is a major change in society and therefore of major interest from a religious perspective. Language and our linguistic faculties and our intellectual faculties are all aspects of something which uh, God has distinguished humankind with. So what's necessary is that we understand the nature and form of the capacities which are being produced in um, our artefacts today. Are they really producing language in the same sense that we produce language? Do they bear intentions or inequalities in the same way that we have inner subjective experiences? Over time, on the one hand, there is a hope from the proponents of AI that these systems will improve to the level that they'll become indistinguishable from what a human being would be able to do. On the other hand, there are also philosophical debates about the nature of language itself that language is not something which needs to be understood as originating from a divine creation of human beings, but is purely a mechanistic phenomena. From a religious perspective, the animating force of life itself is something which is referred to as the soul. And again, this is something which is beyond the realms of uh, science and physics. It's a metaphysical question. 
Whereas if we talk about machines uh, possessing the same faculties and capacities as human beings, then we could be saying that something like the soul is an unnecessary part of understanding human nature because we could just apply the same mechanistic explanations for human faculties as we do to our machines. Is there any positive scope for the way that AI might or people might interact with AI in religious contexts? You know, I'm thinking about examples of robots engaging in prayer or of robots engaging in care, which can be seen as a kind of act of religious commitment. Uh, is there any scope for it to be something positive or, or, or do we need to be a bit more sceptical about its benefits? Islamic tradition is very much in favour of reducing technology, which is for the benefits of mankind, for facilitation of, of worldly life. So if an AI can be used, for example, for, for social care to improve the lives of people, then that's a very desirable goal. But at the same time, we must ask what is being displaced from the way society has traditionally operated. So human beings both possess the same form of life and the same form of consciousness and the same form of sensation. So they're able to care based on understanding the nature of one's needs, but also how one feels. Whereas a machine is just looking at the outward characteristics of, of a scene. So they'd only see, for example, that a person is scheduled to eat at a particular time and they would bring out food, for example, or that someone is feeling a bit under the weather. So it would stop producing speech, which would change the mood then it would look for signs of a positive response so this is like a stimulus response approach to caregiving and this is because of the behavioristic influences in the, in the way ai is being developed whereas you know from an islamic perspective there are acts which have an impact beyond this world as well so there there is the opportunity to perform a virtuous act for the person who's delivering the care so this is accompanied with a good intention whereas for, for a machine they appear to act with intentions whereas in reality we know that these are certain procedures that they're following. I, I was really struck by what you were saying about how not only does AI in the context of care possibly deliver less nuance to care for patients mm. but actually also removes the opportunity of a human carer mm. to take on a role and an activity that allows them to express love and through that also to relate to their god and mm. I, i'm really struck by by that as something as a, a of an impact of technology which actually we don't often talk about but is an important consideration when we think about ai in the context of religion but also more broadly just humans as ethical creatures as well i think yeah absolutely i mean at the very inception of modern science technology uh, was the idea of a worldly providence and restoration of the heavenly abode on earth. The idea that with the fall from, from heaven, that Adam had lost heavenly status, but that could be uh, restored through development of technology. First of all, from an Islamic perspective, that's not the way this uh, narrative is given in the Islamic context. In Islamic context, there remains a distinction between the worldly life and the afterlife. So the worldly life remains like a testing ground ahead of the Day of Judgment and then eternal life in the hereafter, whether that would be a heavenly life or being deprived of that by uh, hell. So there's a doctrine in Islamic theology known as kasp, which is the acquisition of actions. 
So with every scenario that we encounter in our lives, you could say that there's always a good and virtuous thing to do, but then also an evil thing to do as well. So there's always a choice being made. Human beings have a free will and choice over their actions. I'm Holly Morse, and you've been listening to World of Belief. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please subscribe and be sure to check out our other episodes. Thanks to the School of Arts, Languages and Culture Social Responsibility Fund for supporting the project. This podcast was produced by Amanda Hancocks and this is a University of Manchester production.